Buddha said, I do not see even one other thing that, when cultivated and developed, leads to the abandonment of things that fetter so effective as this, the seven factors of awakening. They lead those who act upon them to the complete destruction of suffering, to knowledge, awakening, and nibbana. So I'd like to talk about and explore these beautiful qualities of mind, how we help them arise, develop them, and bring them to um, completion this evening. And one of the analogies that I like is thinking of the ingredients of a cake and how when you're about to bake, you kind of want to make sure that you have everything and in the right quantities before you begin. And so we can think of these seven factors like this. They are mindfulness, and then the three kind of arising factors of investigation, energy, and joy, and then the three calming, balancing factors of tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And, as I've been told by one of my friends and colleagues, there's an eighth factor of enlightenment, and that's chocolate. And it's especially important for teachers when they're trying to write Dharma talks. (laughs) Um, And I think you can never have too much chocolate. (laughs) However, (laughs) the other factors are balanced by mindfulness, of which um, you can never have too much mindfulness. But if we have too much energy in our cake, we get agitated. If there's not enough energy, it's dull. If there's too much tranquility, we might fall asleep. And so the ingredients need to be balanced. And it's helpful to think of them as special qualities that can support and bring our practice alive. And the first three qualities, well, the qualities of investigation and energy and joy, they, um, we, they, there's a little bit more action in them. They're the causes of, um, that lead to the effects of tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And We develop them in different ways. It is a linear sequence sequence that happens naturally in our practice. With more mindfulness, there's energy, and then etc. It moves in a linear sequence all the way through to equanimity as a result of our practice. And we can also pay attention to one particular quality, and that will support the development of all of the others. So both of those are happening. And each of us has our strengths and weaknesses. Some of us, energy is our strong quality. And it's not so easy for us to develop concentration. Others of us, 
it's the reverse. And so as I'm talking about them, you can notice which is alive for you and which ones might you pay a little more attention to. And it was told often in the suttas that when the seven factors of awakening were explained by the Buddha, by his chief disciples, Sariputra, Moggallana, that people became fully awakened on hearing them. So if you pay attention, (laughs) it might be possible. And I was talking to some of my friends here um, at dinner time and saying, gee, I wonder if anyone talking about the factors of awakening can get awakened. (laughs) So I'm open to that. (laughs) However, it's up to me to try and balance them as I talk about them. So to begin with, the first thing is that we need to know if they're present or absent. The Buddha said one knows the mindfulness awakening factor is present in me, or one knows there's no mindfulness awakening factor in me, or energy is present, or the factor quality of energy is not present. Just in doing that, we're already inclining the mind. And they're beneficial things that grow with paying attention to them, with appreciating them. Whenever we bring the light of our awareness to them, they strengthen and they become more balanced. Also, if they're absent, it helps to know what helps them to arise, what will lead, what conditions will lead to them coming into being. And if they're present, how to support them developing further and strengthening. And the Buddha talked about external factors that supported each one and internal factors that supported each one. Some of the external factors he mentioned are having good friends, which you have, and avoiding unmindful people. And the internal factors that are really important are careful attention and diligent. Ardent, clearly knowing, mindful. The three qualities that were described as we begin practicing the Satipatthana Sutta. And this wise attention, Carol was mentioning Yaniso Manasikara, wise attention, what we're choosing to pay attention to, and then how we're paying attention to it. What's the attitude in the mind? And so can, as we explore, notice as you listen how you're paying attention, listening with the whole attention in a relaxed way, relaxing back, receiving. The Buddha said, just as a river flows towards the ocean, the factors of awakening flow towards Nibbana. Inclining the mind towards these energies pulls us into their stream. It happens without us trying. And it brings physical benefits as well as mental benefits. They're very healing. 
they're all founded in sila. And so taking the refuges as we did this morning reminds us to provide this um, environment for them to take root. We're secluding ourselves from unskillful thoughts and actions. We're secluding ourselves from the outside distractions. We're building the capacity to be here and not carried away by our stories. And again, another analogy. Just as the rafters of a peaked house all slant, slope, and incline towards Nibbana, so too, one, when, when one develops and cultivates these seven factors of awakening, one slants, slopes, and inclines towards liberation. It's a natural thing that happens. We don't have to try and make it. So I'll talk just briefly about some of the factors and in more detail about others. And if we begin with sati, mindfulness, it's that precise, clear knowing, being awake to what's actually here, as we've been exploring all week. Powerful, careful attention, open, receptive. And it's the foundation for all the other factors. It's, it, it's necessary for them, and it promotes their arising. And it recognizes the conditions in the mind. Is the mind sluggish or agitated, for example? And so it's beneficial all of the time. And sometimes the seven factors of awakening are described as going from the near shore of confusion and all the kalesas to the far shore of awakening. And mindfulness being the pole that balances you as you travel to the other shore. And it's really a pivot point between the arousing factors and the calming factors. So we're present and connected rather than disconnected. We're right there in that moment balancing these qualities. And our training is to establish mindfulness so that it arises again and again and again in the flow of our experience. The presence of one moment of mindfulness in the mind is great. But as you know, as soon or as you've seen, as soon as it arises, it passes away. And so our practice is about recalling attention so that we get this um, sense of presence over and over until it becomes more continuous. So we have this engaged, non-interfering presence, knowing what's here, knowing what's happening to it, without trying to change what's here. So mindfulness alone won't need to lead to awakening. It ref- 
requires a cascade of the all factors. And as we become more mindful, as the mindfulness begins to build and curiosity comes, interest naturally arises and we begin to look closer at what's arising. And that's the quality of the first of these arousing factors. It's called Dhamma Vichaya, discrimination of Dhamma. Um, Another way of describing it is investigation of states, truth discerning wisdom. This in kind of interest that reveals what's actually happening. It allows us to stay present and curious. It's also referred to as the sword of discriminating wisdom that cuts through delusion and confusion. But it's not this cutting through with aversion, it's with discriminating wisdom. And when it's developed, ignorance is seen through. So it's the antidote to doubt, the antidote to delusion. It lights up the field of awareness. It illuminates exactly what's going on. And in that way, it's eliminating the truth. It's showing us what's actually happening beneath all the veils of our concepts, our ideas, our beliefs. And it also reveals what's needed. So it's not a figuring out kind of investigation. It's allowing us to see, oh, this is what's needed here. And sometimes it's referred to as a self-correcting intelligence. We don't need the answer from somewhere else. It's here. It'll show us if we just look. And it isn't um, enough just to look at the object, the cobwebs that are um, obscuring, what this is doing is looking deeper to the field of awareness that all the cobwebs are arising in. So we're starting to look deeper at the nature of mind itself, both the obscuring objects and what it is that's being obscured, the mind itself. So it's very powerful in that way. And sometimes we think of it as having two functions. And the first is this discriminating aspect of function, where we can see what's skillful, what's not skillful. And mindfulness plus dhamma-vichaya differentiate between things. They help us see the components in a big lump of aversion or a big lump of desire. So, or mindfulness might show this tension here, this tension in my belly or my chest. And then Dhamma, Dhamma Vichaya reveals, oh, wanting, wanting something different. Oh, disliking what's here, fear of what's here. Oh, this is a, ma- a mixture of aversion and wanting and another hindrance. So it reveals all the hindrances and the interplay of them. And it also differentiates between the experience of judging and what it's like when there's no judging. So it looks at the attitude in the mind. 
mindfulness reveals the attitude. And then there's the experience of, oh, when there's no judging, there's peace. So there's a possibility to not judge with those two combined. And it also shows, in our, as in our practice, that adjustments are needed and what kind of adjustments, what they are, and how to make them. And so we begin to trust that we can ask, is this working or not? So we're not just, say, paying attention to the breath and getting more and more tense and staying with the breath and getting more and more tense. We're looking and seeing, this isn't working. This is really unpleasant. What's needed? Maybe more space. Open up. Maybe pay attention to what else I'm aware of. Um, And it really helps us monitor our practice so we know what's what's helpful for us in this particular moment. And we begin to trust that the more we practice, the more skill we have in this discernment. What's useful now, what's not. So sati plus investigation help us start to trust more what's useful, what isn't. As a growing trust in the Dharma and in our own experience. And what's important is this is not an intellectual investigation. It's not a figuring out. It's not some kind of thing to gain something. Gain knowledge, get it right, whatever it is. It's more very attuned, alert, fully present. It's really a sensing, deep sensing, so that there's a sense of, oh, that's what would be helpful right now. And then maybe a little meta will arise spontaneously. And I know some of you have had these kinds of experiences where the Dharma shows you, oh, relax. Or, oh, wake up. Whatever way it goes. And it also, as I was saying before, helps us look at what am I paying attention to more closely? What am I choosing to look closer at and what's the effect of that? Mindful notes, thinking, stories. Dhammavichaya goes in, is this going in a useful direction? And as we were talking about this morning, Is this exit a useful one to keep following? Do I need to make a legal U-turn as soon as possible? What am I connecting and sustaining my attention on? What meaning am I giving to things? Am I exaggerating? Is this really true? And so beginning to explore in that way. And even noticing what's present And what's absent is a function of discernment. There's no energy here. There's a lot of energy here. Aversion feels like this. When there's no aversion, oh, it's like this. Get used to what it feels like when the mind is free from aversion. 
And the other piece is understanding the laws of cause and effect. Really looking at having Dhamma Vichaya reveal motivation and intention. So there's an interplay between mindfulness and investigation. Mindfulness might, mindfulness might notice there's a story going on. We're rewriting a script. Investigation looks at what's fueling this? What's fueling the story that keeps recurring? We might see greed, or we might see aversion, or fear, or betrayal. Oh, it's all about me. The story is all about me. That's what's holding it there. Sometimes I'll notice, oh, I'm believing the thoughts. That's why it's continuing. I'm believing them. And sometimes judging the believing is keeping them there. Or aversion to judging the believing is keeping them there. (laughs) So we see these layers and it starts to fall apart. It points us to the direct experience and helps loosen the layers that are sort of holding these blobs of suffering together. They start to untangle. And then we're seeing a deeper truth, not with judgment, but with discerning wisdom. The second important uh, function of Dharma Vichaya is investigating the phenomena of experience. And that means um, a slightly more active inquiry into the nature of our experience. Sort of looking closely, what is this? What's actually happening? Seeing anew this sort of sensing into any of the aspects of the three characteristics we've spoken of, of impermanence, everything's changing, and of the solidity we sometimes have of our sense of self, and of clinging, and this sense of unsatisfactoriness. We're seeing things as they actually are, unmediated, without the super, um, whatever it is, I can't think of the word, superimposed something or another of our ideas and beliefs. So it's like the veils are falling away, revealing the truth. And if we pay close attention to the changing nature of things, this is one way we can use investigation. And we can see how much of our experience is in constant motion. Intense sensations arise and pass. Aversion to them arises and passes. The stories about them arises and passes. The self that they're happening to arises and passes. The clinging arises and passes. And we just see this. Everything is changing all of it. And we begin to see that the hindrances are coming and going. And that they're they're insubstantial. They're not solid and impermanent. 
rather than I'm a greedy person or I'm full of greed. Greed is arising. Greed is persisting. What's happening that greed is persisting? Oh, I've become the greed. And so we see how it's creating suffering. And we see the impermanent nature of ourself and of all the identities that come together to make a self. We just see, as we look more deeply, the arising and passing of all the identities. Analogy I like is like you're holding one of those dandelion heads and that old game is you puff. They love me. They love me not. I'm the greatest. No, I'm not. (laughs) You keep blowing it and each identity changes moment by moment. So we can, with investigation, look at all the assumptions, all the beliefs, all those things. What happens to them? as we pay attention in this way. So we're actually looking into the process of perceiving rather than the contents of perception. Now I'll say that again. We're looking at this process of perceiving and the process of what's doing the perceiving, not the content. And that gives us a lot more perspective It's as though we're both paying attention to these objects and we're also paying attention to the awareness, the spaciousness that they're arising in. And the more we practice, the more possible that is. And then then, um, because we have that perspective, the identities with them loosens. And there's a shift in the mind and we have more space and we're less caught. So we have more choice in how we respond. So it's important with um, Dharma Vichaya that it's balanced because it's easy um, to have too much or too little. When there's too little, the mind feels dull and confused or... um, just spaced out. If there's too much, we can get lost in thought or there's analytical stuff going on, we're figuring it out, or we start feeling agitated and there's pressure in the body or the mind feels tight, contracted. But it's a self-correcting system. As soon as mindfulness notices agitation, investigation might reveal, oh, trying to figure it out, trying too hard, too excited. And then there's a correction, oh, relax. Um, For me, because I can get, this happens to me fairly frequently, it's like, okay, hands off. And I have this image of sitting on my hands so I can't get in there and fiddle with what's arising. or going into analytical whatever. And so they all feed back on each other. Concentration provides the stability to investigate without getting too agitated. 
going into too much thinking. And it's a positive feedback loop also. Whenever there's interest, whatever it is, whether it's the breath, sensations, thoughts, um, a mood, a feeling, it actually becomes more interesting. Shining a light of Dhammavichaya always reveals something more to understand. It's like there's no limit to the unknown. And I find that really exciting. And so Dhammavichaya, in my experience, brings energy to the mind and enthusiasm, curiosity. So this is the next factor, Dhammavichaya, next of the arousing factors after Dhammavichaya is virya, energy. And, the, and when virya is, a fa- virya is a factor of awakening, it energizes in wise ways. So it's fueled by wise view and wise intention rather than greed, aversion, or delusion. And so this is a skillful form of energy. And, it prov- and it's like a vitality, perseverance, courage, enthusiasm and um, like a a wholehearted engagement that's not tinged by um, an agenda, an expectation. I'm doing this so that I can have a great meditation. It's just a, a pure quality. And so the motivation and intention are key in this. Where are we aligning our energy? Whatever we give our attention to receives our energy. And so that's why it's um, so helpful to um, notice where we're aligning it. And mindfulness and Dhammavichaya will um, cultivate that. And then to notice the things that take up energy. Obviously, indecision and doubt really use up energy whereas faith contributes to energy. That trust um, provides energy. Whenever we get into judging or comparing, um, or as Greg was saying this morning, struggle, that all takes up energy and it's tiring. So it's this relaxed attention, this gentle continuity of attention throughout the day. So it's supportive, nourishing, kind attention. And then the trust builds, this soft continuity, moment after moment. When the mind wanders, oh, welcome back. So it's a frictionless return. Here I am again. Rather than that contraction of discouragement because we went away. Or if we notice the discouragement, kindness to that. So that combination of mindfulness and kindness, continuity. And when this is continuity, we can relax back and the energy begins to build on its own. Curious, open, willing. So there's a willingness, a receptive. And there's a balance between doing and non-doing. It's finding that balance. 
But we're not saying that non-doing is superior to doing. Because we, um, and I've forgotten which of my teachers said this, we need the utmost fortitude and the gentlest touch. So that's that, that real presence and commitment and the gentle touch together provide energy. So we can be fully present to whatever is arising. And there's a steadfast resolve of not giving up on ourselves. It may be really unpleasant, but there's this, I'm here for myself, just here, just here. However it is, And that's what enables us to be with the difficulties, just this moment. And then we practice learning to kind of reset when mindfulness shows us we're out of balance. When the energy gets agitated, we can incline towards the awakening factor of calm. And we can also begin to notice when the energy is moving into addictive patterns and begin to have a sense of, of refraining from that. You know, and a, a story that we keep repeating, um, a fantasy, whatever it is. I've had that happen on long retreats where there's a certain fantasy that I keep being seduced into. And I might even say, okay, just five minutes. <laughs> and then I'll come back. <laughs> And so it's sort of noticing that, <laughs> that quality of mind with investigation and being able to come back. The mind learning to say no to itself. Not now, here. And unplugging, when we unplug from distraction, there's more energy available, naturally. And the other thing that is helpful to know is that unfortunately there is no thermostat where we can set it for the right balance of energy. It's not like now I found how to do it and I can set this up in the future. It's this continual fine-tuning. At the beginning of the retreat it's more course adjustments and then it gets finer and finer tuning as we balance the energy. Sometimes it can be the in-breath is bringing in energy and awakeness. The out-breath is calming. So it can be just moment-to-moment energy adjustment. And when we have this relaxed continuity of presence, the energy and momentum build. And there's an, it's like there's a channel for energy and it begins to feel effortless. And as that starts to happen, joy comes into the mind. There's a confidence and um, it's as though the energizing factors are coming together to this sustained joyful interest. And that's the next of the factors, joy. The Pali word is piti. Rapt attention, delight, wholehearted enjoyment. And because you'll be having a whole talk on joy, just say a few things. It can 
range from just the simple delight at a moment of mindfulness that's clear to, to a kind of relief because there's no hindrances present, to a really deep, easeful, smooth kind of joy. And the body and mind often are filled with awareness. And there's a pleasant feeling to that. It's like being saturated with mindfulness and presence. And it just feels really wonderful to allow ourselves to be filled with presence. And this sense of full presence is a condition for joy. This moment is enough. I'm right here. Wow feels so good. So just sense that for a moment, what it might be like to be fully present in the body, mind, and heart, however it is. And right now as I do that, I'm aware of a soft vibration. But I also have to be careful that the joy doesn't build into excitement. That's when the joy is is unbalanced. Sometimes it can feel very bubbly and it's like a, a kid at a party. And I'll have an image of kind of bouncing like this. And then that's an indication to calm. So the joy smooths and calms and moves um, into tranquility. We can't make joy happen. It arises as a condition of our practice. But we can incline the mind towards it. The Buddha talks frequently about gladdening the mind. Appreciation, gratitude, being open to what am I grateful for, gladdens the mind. And you've been chanting both in Pali and in English, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. I'm really feeling into that sense of gladness as you chant. Judging, comparing, and fixing, and taking it personally, identifying, all block joy. The moment we get caught in that, joy is blocked. Anjan Sumedho says this, when the heart is free of the illusions of self, there arises a loving quality in the pure joy of being without expectation of being anybody, uh, becoming anybody or anything, nor the expectation of anything lasting or being permanent. Joy in just being, in this moment, right now. And again, I noticed at the end of that, some little part of my mind went, yeehaw, <laughs> calming down. <laughs> so, 
So this transition from joy to tranquility requires balancing that shift from what energizes to what calms. So tranquility is this resting, relaxed. The Pali word is pasadi. It's a quiet presence, a still point. It's soothing, healing. It's like rain falling onto a hot, into a hot place, cooling. Free from anxiety, free from restlessness. The inner struggles, the judgments have kind of faded away. And it feels like such a relief. All the controlling impulses are released. We're not trying to control our experience. There's a relating to every moment just with awareness, just with knowing, is still. And this peace is coming from um, our streams of being coming together, a sort of unifying. We're coming out of the distractions and being pulled by the hindrances. And just this coming to stillness. And we can experience it both mentally and physically. When we experience it physically, it's like the nervous system is calming down. The parasympathetic nervous system is being activated, if you like. So there's a soothing to the whole being. And then the mind is, more, is becoming more composed and unruffled and um, clearer, lighter. So sense the possibility of that. The mind more at ease. So there's a soft spaciousness, a lightness. Still. Content. Not needing anything different to happen. When tranquility is developed, desire is abandoned, it says. And so that calm spaciousness also allows things to untangle. And um, there are ways of being on retreat that can feed calm or that can lead to agitation. That habit of somewhere better to be, something better to do. That when we get caught, now shall I sit outside? this afternoon, or shall I sit inside? Maybe it would be better to walk in the hall, or maybe it would be better to walk outside. On the other hand, I think I'll go and have a cup of tea. You know, that sort of (laughs) is agitating to the mind. It's, um, and we can take our habitual multitasking and busyness into our practice. And also, I know this is true for me, when I'm anticipating what's next. It's that moment of always just that slight leaning into the future. I've noticed that sometimes, even when I'm listening to a piece of music that I really like. Um, I was listening to um, a Beethoven 
piano concerto I hadn't heard for a while, and I'm listening, and my mind is producing the next phrase just before it comes. I don't know whether you've had that experience. Like, stop it. Let it come up fresh. Um, And so we do that with, with our meditation. So notice when you're anticipating and see if you can relax back at ease. Let it come. That subtle doing. Sometimes we don't recognize that calm is there. It gets covered over. Or we confuse calm with nothing's happening right now. I'm bored. You know, there's been a lot of intensity, perhaps body pain or emotional pain or stories, and now it's quiet. And we're so used to having to the mind thinking about something that when there's not that thought, we miss the calm. I think it was Christina Feldman that said, um, calm equals boredom without aversion. So just note, be present for when calm is there. Appreciate the moments. And then we get to know them, what they feel like, and we don't miss them. The more we give attention to moments of calm, the easier it is to connect and have them deepen. And then, then of course, we can actively cultivate calm, often in nature, being in the stillness of the trees, or of, of um, just the simplicity and stillness. So it's an invitation to relax into a wider sense of spaciousness. And when we develop this, we can connect with a deep inner stillness in the midst of whatever circumstances are changing. It's like we can connect with this depth of calm, of stillness, remembering that that's always there. We just have to incline to it. We can't make it happen. Like a parent telling a child, Calm down. It's like it gets worse. (laughs) So there needs to be no aversion. Tranquility is the conditioning factor for concentration. And that was a breakthrough for me. I'd always, so much of the time, tried to get concentrated. And there'd been a lot of efforting in my concentration. You know, just sort of attention or a contraction. And um, quite a few years ago, I was going to sit for a month, and um, my teacher was, um, I had a, it was a sort of self-retreat, but there would be a teacher there. And I couldn't quite decide what my focus would be. And this is back in the days when I still used um, a call phone. (laughs) So on the way to the retreat, because the teacher wasn't going to be there for a few days, I called up and I said, you know, I don't know what kind of practice to do. And he said, have you thought about beginning with calming? And when he said that, ah, calming. I could feel it. 
And it was a, an amazing experience for me to find that the doorway into concentration was calming, the sense of ease, relaxation, balance, rather than any trying. However, the one problem with that was I didn't have enough energy at the beginning of his retreat. So you can guess what happened. Calming, calming, clunk. (laughs) And there was a, a struggle with that for a while. But with concentration, all of the factors are gathered together. And um, concentration um, unifies them and balances them all. And there's like an inner power and beauty that begins to unfold. And the mind becomes malleable, flexible, um, bright, clear, and... um, we can turn that mind to insight because of the clarity. And when concentration has built from the awakening factors, there is that sense of malleability. It's as though concentration is holding the object with mindfulness, holding the object. Mindfulness is paying attention. And then investigation is looking more closely and really knowing what's here. Maybe, it, maybe the investigation is revealing everything's changing. Maybe it's revealing, oh, everything's insubstantial and not solid. So there's a gathering of energies to build stability and then using that to investigate our experience, to see really clearly. So concentration plus investigation kind of purify things that obscure. They um, decrease the hindrances. Concentration plus mindfulness help transform what's revealed. And the insights can penetrate more deeply. Sometimes we'll have an insight um, when there's not so much concentration around. And it's really revealing we lose it after. You go home and it doesn't seem to have made any impact on your life. I've had that experience many times. Everything changes, but now I'm holding on just as much as I ever was. But when the factors of awakening are all there, there's more depth. You get it in a much deeper way, on a, on a um, more sensing level. And the habit patterns start to shift and smooth out. And the other thing we find when concentration is strong is that we can fine-tune more easily. And we can call up the awakening factors. I remember reading how Sariputra, um, there's a story in the suttas about he had mastery over them. And if he decided in the morning that... The, he wanted the factors of mindfulness. Mindfulness was arise. If he wanted equanimity, equanimity would arise. Whatever factor he spoke to would arise in balance. And he said it was like choosing what clothes to wear. They just appeared. 
And I really liked that. But then I found, oh, there were moments when that was possible, when when samadhi was more balanced. There could be, oh, let there just be a little more energy here, and it would happen. Or, let the joy calm a little bit, and it would happen. Not all the time, of course, and not every time, but once in a while. And that built faith in what the mind is capable of. It's possible. And from these, we then develop equanimity. The calm and the concentration develop more fully, and the mind becomes balanced. It's like an equipoise, this coming together of all the other factors in balance. And this is an evenness of mind. Nothing can disturb it. We're neither rejecting nor holding on to experience, neither moving towards nor away. It really feels even. And there's a sense of letting be and at the same time being completely engaged and present. So it's not an equanimity that's drifting away, but real clear presence here, the capacity to include all of experience. Nothing is left out. This too, this too. And it's unwavering and steady. Sensations arise in the mind and they're known for what they are. It's just um, a beautiful um, it's like the desire to control experience disappears or fades away, and we can be with it however it is. In our practice, it comes and goes. We may have moments when there's equanimity. Sometimes it can last for a long time in our experience. But then it will fade away, and, the mind's, and, the, uh, and we're off balance again. But gradually, over time, it strengthens. And we can incline the mind to equanimity, to balance. And even just allowing things to be the way they are is helpful. There's no equanimity right now. That's how it is. I've learned so much about equanimity by exploring all the moments that there's no equanimity. And in fact, I now have equanimity about not having equanimity. That's <laughs> helpful. We don't take it so seriously. This is just a moment of no balance. It's very unpleasant. But the discriminating wisdom shows it's not personal and it's not permanent. But it's suffering if I get upset about it. So the stability and calm of concentration and equanimity help protect the mind as we go deeper. And as we begin to have deeper realizations of of anatta and of impermanence and of the suffering of clinging. Because it can feel unsettling. Fear can come up. 
what's going to happen now? The direct experience of um, these three characteristics can be unsettling. But as equanimity grows, we're able to allow this more and more into our awareness. And there's an understanding that more, more and more clearly, oh, everything is changing. There's no point holding on. And in fact, there isn't anyone to hold on. And that's actually a relief. <laughs> it's, um, I felt so li- sort of free when I realized that. And then, of course, immediately what comes back is, oh, what a great insight I have had. <laughs> and so it's, it's <laughs> just knowing that, oh, there's another one, and another one, and another one. And so we start to see more and more clearly these patterns. All of us have these patterns. And they gradually thin out and lessen over time. And we all have these seeds of awakening, and our practice helps them to deepen. And that's the magic of the path. They do arise all on their own, even if it's gradually, even if you're not aware that that's what's happening. They are. All we have to do is acknowledge their presence and their absence and provide the conditions of gentle mindfulness and continuity, sincere attention and motivation with kindness, so that we um, truly can abide, not clinging to anything in the world. And the mind is clear, compassionate, open, and loving. So may the factors of awakening develop, reveal themselves to you, and bring you the greatest happiness. Thank you. And not to forget the eighth factor of awakening. So thank you for your attention. And this time for walking practice. Just allowing this, the, all this to integrate um, and not going to bed immediately, but just having that sense of letting it all settle however it does. And we'll be chanting um, this evening. And the chanting supports the awakening of the enlightenment factors. So, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.